Well, where do we go from here as we've been reflecting together in this series of reflections, being the people of God in the pandemic? Where do we go? And why must we lament? I think it's been obvious throughout this series of reflections that we've been sharing together that we are urging a posture in days like these of embracing lament. Embracing lament for the people of God. And that that would be the vital initial response that as the people of God we would have in this pandemic. Do you know that roughly, and we've studied some of them through this series of reflections, roughly one-third of the Psalms are lamenting that things are not as they should be. The words they use are words of complaint, of question, sorrow, anger, depression, fear, insecurity, protest, and frustration, and often enough, bitterness. All of this is expressed in these psalms of lament. They, they all compose the prayer book, in fact, of Jesus Himself. And the New Testament draws freely on them, as we've noticed. Last week, we reflected on the fact that, that Paul was quoting from the psalms, a psalm of lament. We're going to see again this morning how the Psalms are drawn upon in other parts of the Scriptures. The New Testament, of course, freely draws on them to express not only our own laments, but the way of Jesus as well. The Lord's Prayer we have reflected on is to be our norm, our rule if you will. Are we looking for sudden signs of the end? No. We pray every day, Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And we know that prayer will be answered because of what we know about Jesus. Are we arbitrarily looking for fresh, sudden, random calls to repent in days like these? As the people of God? No. We pray every day, forgive us our sins, our trespasses, our debts, as we forgive those who do the same against us. This is to be the life we live. We know that prayer will be answered because of what we know about Jesus. Are we then looking for fresh reasons to leave our comfortable lifestyles and tell our neighbors the good news? Well, shame on us if it takes a pandemic to get us to that point. Why wasn't Jesus' command, His commission, enough for us in the first place? Why were not His words, as the Father has sent Me, so I am sending you. 
Go and make all nations, all people groups, ethnos, all ethnicities into My disciples. Why weren't those words enough? Why would it take something like a pandemic to get us to that point? As Paul knew in Athens, you don't need extra signs. More or less, as so often, you need King Jesus alone. He is the ultimate sign. His kingdom bringing life and death and resurrection. His ascended sovereignty. The promise of His making all things new. Coming. His coming. His parousia. To bring heaven and earth together in glorious final renewal and restoration. He is the ultimate sign of the times. Jesus and all that He has accomplished. So every attempt to add new signs to this narrative, this story, diminishes it. These are the things we have been reflecting on. Where do we go from here? It, it diminishes it if we try to add signs of our own. It implies that in Jesus' parable of the vineyard tenants, as we have reflected on it as well, the owner did, after all, have a few more messengers he could have sent, even after sending his only son and watching him be rejected and killed. A picture of Christ, of the Father sending Jesus. In a time such as this, loved ones, in days like these, when death is literally in the very air we breathe. Sneaking into houses and shops. When you may feel healthy yourself, but you could be carrying the virus without knowing it. When every stranger on the street is a threat. When we go around in masks. When church buildings are closed, or at least very limited in their gathering. When people are dying with nobody to pray by their bedside, this is certainly a time for lament. Yeah? It's a time for admitting we don't have easy answers. Even as a people of faith, Though we like to think we do at times, and though our arrogance betrays us, we don't have easy answers and resolution. It's a time for refusing to use the crisis that we are in as a loudspeaker for what we'd been wanting to say all along in any case. For inconsiderately and uncaringly and arrogantly showboating how we are a people of faith, not fear. As we've seen in Jesus, the ultimate sign in our great example, it's a time for weeping at the tomb of our friends. For the inarticulate groaning of the Holy Spirit as we have reflected on more recently. 
Rejoice with those who rejoice, said Paul. And weep with those who weep. Yes, the world is weeping right now. The initial calling of the church, of the people of God, first and foremost, is to take our place humbly, sensitively, and compassionately among the mourners. Grief, after all, is a part of love. We must realize this. Grief is a part of love. Not to grieve, not to lament, is to slam the door on the same place in the innermost heart from which love itself comes. But our culture is afraid of grief, isn't it? Our culture is afraid of grief because it is afraid of death. And that is natural and normal, and it's an appropriate reaction to the last enemy. However, our culture is afraid of grief by reason of more than just this. More than just its fear of death. Our culture is afraid of grief because it seems to be afraid of the fear itself. Frightened that even to name grief, even to express grief will be to collapse forever. We have to keep going, we tell ourselves. We have to be strong. Well, yes, strong, like Jesus, who wept at the tomb of his friend. That was Jesus' picture of strength to us. Strong like the Holy Spirit, who raised Jesus from the dead and will give life to our mortal bodies as well. But who right now is pleading for us with groanings too deep for words in our Romans passage that we have recently looked at. Strong like the person who learns to pray the Psalms. Strong like people who learn to wait patiently for the Lord and expect neither easy answers nor easy words to say to the world. I said to my soul, be still and let the dark come upon you which shall be the darkness of God. I said to my soul, be still and wait without hope. For hope would be hope for the wrong thing. Wait without love, for love would be love of the wrong thing. There is yet faith, but the faith and the hope 
and the love are all in the waiting. Wait without thought, for you are not yet ready for thought. So the darkness shall be the light, and the stillness the dancing. In order to arrive at what you do not know, you must go by a way which is the way of ignorance. These are words that were mused by the late great poet T.S. Eliot in East Coker. It was the second of the four quartets, as they're called, written, interestingly enough, he wrote this and penned these words when the skies over London were dark with German warplanes during World War II. You see, Eliot had realized, as we must realize in days like these, Eliot had realized that all the easy comforts for which we reach when things are tough are likely to be delusions. We grab for them. And perhaps we hope that God will quickly give them to us so that we don't have to face the darkness and the difficulty. So that we don't have to watch and pray with Jesus in Gethsemane. We'd rather sleep. We'll just sleep this through and maybe when we wake up it will all be over. There is a time for restraint, for fasting, for a sense of exile, of not belonging, of defamiliarization, a time for not rushing too quick, not rushing to quick and easy judgments. It's all too easy for us to grasp at quick fix solutions in prayer as in life, isn't it? We like that. We live in that kind of an age. The age of the instant. Instant soup. Instant noodles. Instant popcorn. Instant coffee. And so we like instant faith too. It can be hard bitter anguish to live with the summons to lament, to share in the groaning of the Spirit. But that, that is where we are conformed to the image of the Son, Paul says. That is where we enter into the mysteries of God. That is where we labor together with God unto His greater glory as we most recently reflected on last week in Romans 8.28. Desiring to see heaven and earth reborn. All creation newly born as He makes all things new. So where do we go from here? How do we think and talk about God? 
we have considered to this point that it is only through the lens of Jesus Himself and with the Holy Spirit that we really see and know what it means to say that God is in control of His world. Jesus and the Spirit are the very definition and full expression of this. If we want to know what the sovereignty of God looks like, what His providence looks like, what it looks like for God to be in control of circumstances and situations, we look to Jesus. And what we see in Jesus and the Holy Spirit defines that for us, shows us what that looks like. And it looks very different from our own definitions. Jesus redefined our understanding of God's kingdom. And He redefined it around His own vocation. The climax of which was to be His crucifixion. That's a very absurd picture of kingdom rule. Crucifixion for our sins according to the Scriptures, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. Jesus understood the whole narrative, the whole story of Israel, itself a focal point of the Creator's rescuing purpose for His world as being funneled down to one point, the lonely agony of Good Friday. Jesus had to go into the darkness and take its full weight upon Himself. And He did so in the belief that this was what it would mean for the ancient promises to be fulfilled. For Israel's God Himself to come back in person to accomplish the ultimate Passover. This would be the way to overthrow the dark, destructive, cosmic powers. Entering into the darkness. Embracing The agony. This would be how to rescue the world from death itself and all that causes it. So Jesus in doing this and in believing this was thoroughly in tune with the creation vocation of human beings according to Genesis 1. That being to reflect... God's purposes in the world. You know, when humans sinned, God didn't cancel that part of the creation package program to reflect God's purposes in the world. We live so much of our faith and our life from Genesis 3 forward. We need to get back to living from Genesis 1 forward. Somehow, consciously or unconsciously, we have come to think that because of what occurred in Genesis 3, Genesis 1 and 2 are canceled. Not so. God called a human family. 
knowing full well that they were as deeply flawed as the rest, but He still called them to be His partners in the work of redemption and new creation. This human family, the people of Abraham, of Moses, of David, arrived at its destiny with Jesus Himself. The Jesus who wept at the tomb of His friend. The Jesus who wept in anguish over the city of Jerusalem. Who agonized in Gethsemane. The Jesus who cried out on the cross that He had been abandoned. You see, that is how God's kingdom is established. It's not established in ways that we see in the news media every day flashing before us. It's not established in that kind of pushback and violence. It's established in these pictures of Jesus that we have. And that, beloved, remains its nature and its character to this day. We see that in the Sermon on the Mount, don't we? We've studied the Sermon on the Mount together here. We see it in the book of Acts. When Jesus' followers go out to proclaim that He is already the world's true Lord in a culture where it was declared Caesar is Lord. Now, modern rationalists, including modern Christian rationalists, relying on reason and rationale and logic as the basis for the establishment of religious truth, who were brought up to suppose that rationalist skepticism must be answered by rationalistic apologetics in defense of the faith, these individuals easily imagine that you solve the problems of the world by sending in the tanks or the bombs. We know that that's what the Western powers have done again and again at the political level, don't we? And it's what some apologists try to do on the intellectual level in defense of the faith. In other words, God is sovereign. He can do what He likes. Therefore, whatever happens must be what God wanted in the first place. Therefore, we must be able to explain why. However, that wasn't how God initially established His kingdom. And that isn't how the kingdom works now. Think again instead of the posture of the Antioch church, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago, and how they created a relief fund sending help to Jerusalem. After Agabus the prophet prophesied there was going to be this famine, and Jerusalem was not a wealthy church, you remember we looked at it, the church in Antioch said, how can we help? What can we do? And they, they put together a relief fund and they sent help to Jerusalem. 
They did not think of themselves first, but of aiding those who would be in a worse position than themselves. Acts 11.29 That is how the kingdom works. Not bombs, not tanks, not, not violence in that way. That is how the kingdom works. Many things, after all, do you realize this? Actually bring grief to God. They bring Him anguish. Why must we lament? God laments. God grieves. Providence is Jesus-shaped. It isn't an iron grip relentlessly and ruthlessly controlling everything as so many of us have imagined. In Genesis 6, verse 6, you may recall, God sees the wickedness of humankind. These, this was during the days of Noah. He sees the wickedness of humankind. And, and, and interestingly enough, God doesn't say, well, you know, I have allowed that in my sovereignty and providence. I've allowed that in order to do something great with it. God doesn't say that. Genesis tells us that it grieved him in his heart. The Hebrew text is explicit on that point. Even so, even so, this evidently troubled some later Jewish thinkers because the what's called the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, it translates that word in Genesis where it grieved him, it broke God's heart, it was during roughly the second century BC, and it says this instead. Well, God thought it over. So there was some kind of struggle there with the fact that God grieved. We struggle with that. We find that hard to accept. Anyway, the scripture is clear it was out of this heart grief that God called Noah through whom God would redemptively make a way through the disaster. And there's a, a direct redemptive thread that we see from Genesis 6-6 and what it says about God to Mark's Gospel, chapter 14 and verse 34, and what it says about Jesus. It's on the screen for us both these Scriptures together. So, the Lord was sorry He had ever made humankind and put them on the earth. It broke His heart. That's the Hebrew Scriptures, Genesis 6. Jesus, in Mark's Gospel, my soul is crushed with grief right to the point of death. And interestingly enough, again, both of these are quoting Psalms 42 and 43. Two classic lament psalms. John, in his Gospel, has Jesus say much the same thing. Now my heart is troubled. John 
Again, quoting Psalm 6. Jesus can perceive the flood of death and despair coming upon him. And unlike Noah, he will have no ark. He himself will be the ark. He will take with him and within him God's whole creation through the flood of death and out into new creation that dawns on Easter morning with His resurrection. So there are things that grieve God, break His heart, cause Him anguish, and equally there are some things that apparently shock God. The Israelites were told again and again that they should not practice human sacrifice. However, they didn't simply do it on the sly. They constructed great high places for this specific purpose. And God's response is to say, I didn't command this, nor did it even come into my mind. Jeremiah 7.31, and it's repeated again in Jeremiah 32.35. Actually, the Hebrew text again says heart in reference to God. Didn't even enter my heart, God. God neither intended it nor even dreamed of it. And now, here of course, what we're seeing is a paradox again. And we don't like paradoxes. There are many paradoxes when it comes to our faith and to God. We see it most sharply when Peter says to the crowd in Acts chapter 2 and verse 23 that the, the death of Jesus was what God... Watch this. Peter says the death of Jesus was what God intended and planned. But that the people who arrested and tried and killed him were wicked to do so. You seeing the paradox there? It's what God intended and planned, but you people who carried it out were wicked to do so. There's this tension in those words in that statement. So which is it? Was it what God planned or intended or was it wicked? And there's no way around this paradox, whether we like it or not. We can try to explain it away. We can try to define it away. But there's no way around it. And nor should we look for one way around it or try to come up with one of our own, like we often do. Beloved, we are not given nice, easy, comprehensible, mechanistic analysis here. Please hear this. It is important that we understand this and get a hold of this. Especially in days like these. Evil is an intruder into God's created order. It's as plain as that. Any attempt we make to analyze either what it is or why it is permitted or what God does with it, 
apart from the clear, strong statement that God overcomes it through Jesus' death for sinners, any attempt to, to, to go beyond that is not only trying to put wind in a bottle, it is supposing that we can imagine an orderly universe in which evil has an appropriate, allowable place. Evil is not part of God's creation order. It's an intruder. And we don't have easy answers to explain it, or define it, or understand it. Any attempt to do so is a pathway to dangerous deception. To give an account of God's good creation in which there is a natural, acceptable slot for evil to be found. The old philosopher's problem of evil cannot be solved except at the foot of the cross. Just as the politician's problem of evil, such as emerged after 9-11, when George Bush and Tony Blair talked grandly of there being an axis of evil. Do you remember those days? An axis of evil, and they were going to deal with it. It's always a hazardous way to go about things, as we've seen. Bush and Blair thought that the way to solve the problem of evil was by dropping bombs from a great height. And every one of those bombs, as some people predicted at the time, turned out to be another agent of recruiting stimulus for yet another more extreme form of radical Islamism. We saw it happen before our very eyes. In the same way, the rationalistic analysis of evil offered by some, you know, like, okay, God allowed the Holocaust to create an opportunity for some people to develop the virtues of heroism and self-sacrifice and so on. Come on. Or perhaps... God allowed the Holocaust in order that the modern state of Israel would arise. He brought something good out of it. Those lines of thinking also serve as recruiting agents for new forms of radical atheism. This idea, this notion, this understanding would offer the dark, disturbing picture of a God who deliberately allowed a dangerous virus like this COVID-19 virus to escape from a Chinese laboratory or market in order that by killing millions of innocent people, God could issue a general call to repentance to those who were left and create a stage on which some people, the doctors and nurses, could develop and display heroism. If that is your God, many of our contemporaries would rightly think, don't expect us to want to have anything to do with Him. And yet, that's often the God we present. 
as dangerous and strange as it may seem, it is then altogether more appropriate for us to recognize in days like these that God has, in fact, delegated the running of many aspects of His world to human beings. Genesis 1, Psalm 8 talk about this. Through a redeemed humanity, radiant with His glory, He's going to remake the world as they are called to stand at the intersection of heaven and earth. As you and I, the people of God, are called, are given the vocation to stand at the intersection between heaven and earth. And in this arrangement, God has obviously run the risk that we will grieve Him to His heart or shock Him out of His mind. God has taken that risk. However, when this happens, He will hold people responsible. And that is the other side of the coin of this delegation of authority to His image bearers. After all, Jesus recognizes, for instance, that Pontius Pilate has a genuine God-delegated authority over him. Jesus recognizes that when he's standing before Pilate. He merely comments in John 19.11 that God will therefore hold to account those responsible for handing him over. So Jesus is recognizing God's delegated authority upon someone like Pilate, but He's also reflecting and commenting that that very authority will be held accountable as well. And this is why we need proper investigation and accountability for whatever it was that caused this virus to leak out. And I know there's all kinds of conspiracies out there. You've heard them as well as I have. Everybody from China to Bill Gates to have been blamed. I don't know. And I would dare say that you don't know either. You might think you do. We don't know. There are no easy answers, no easy resolve. But we do know that God will hold all of this to account. Those involved will be held accountable. However, whatever it was that caused it will be accounted for. And the lesser ways in which various countries and governments have or have not dealt wisely in preparing for a pandemic and then handling it when it rushes upon us. All of this brings us now to the question, how do we live with this problem? And how do we come through it? What, along with lament and laboring in prayer, as we have looked at, is the calling of the church in the midst of this as we go forward? Where do we go from here? Stay tuned. We're going to consider that.